But you might be interested in how I became offensive. One of the most important things is to, is to recognize that we do have this mounting violence in us. Shoot them in the legs so they can't move. They shoot them in the shoulders, in the arms, and in the rib cages where they breathe nice. Oh, yes. I probably am a dead man already. Furious Lives, a true history podcast. Well, in a sense, they weren't really controllable. They were harnessable, but you, they, they all had this individuality. But it, the, the object was to give them the same purpose. And once they were harnessed to that proposition, then they became, uh, they policed themselves, so to speak. The vast majority of violent crime is committed by men under 30. 20-something men are also overrepresented in drug use, driving offences and all causes of accident-related mortality. The young adult brain doesn't fully develop until 25 years old. Prior to that, young people, particularly men, have trouble envisaging the consequences of actions. Young men take silly risks and die by misadventure at a far higher rate than any other demographic. Risk-taking behaviour is fueled by ambition. Ambition to be the biggest, the best, the brightest, to go one-up on the guy next to you, to stand out among your peers. The same youthful exuberance that sees young men dead in fiery car crashes can also see them start businesses, win world championships, and change the fate of nations. With risk, sometimes, comes great reward. But what would happen if you set out to push the habits of young men to the extreme? What if, for example, you took a bunch of highly competitive 20-somethings, gave them drugs, booze, trucks, guns and explosives, then turned around to them and said, Remember, boys, who dares wins? The date was July 15th, 1941. And in the midst of a blistering Egyptian summer, a young British army officer named David Sterling was driving across Cairo to meet with the heads of the Special Services Division. He was just 26 years old. Sterling was born in the town of Stirling, Scotland, in 1915. His family was rich and well-connected, with an impressive military pedigree. His uncle had founded an entire regiment, the Lovat Scouts, his father had been a brigadier general and a member of parliament for the Unionist Party. Both his brothers, Peter and Hugh, were also officers in the British Army. For much of his youth, David had been considered the disappointment of the three. He was the middle child and hadn't shown all that much dedication to his schooling, scoring middling grades and exhibiting no ambition. As an adult, he turned out to be a bit of a lad. He didn't settle into a career after university and set about travelling the world in search of adventure. When World War II broke out, he was training for a mountain climbing expedition in Nepal. In Sterling's version of the events of July 15, 1941, he was on crutches following a parachute accident. He rushed past the guards, leapt over a fence, ran up some stairs and broke into the office of Major General Neil Ritchie. With the aid of some notes scribbled on a napkin, he then forced Ritchie to listen to his bold new idea for a new type of fighting unit. But that's not what happened. 
at all. In reality, Sterling's father and Richie were old drinking buddies, and Richie had probably invited him over for an afternoon cocktail. Part of David Sterling's immense charm was that he loved telling a good story, and he was never afraid to bend the truth, if it made for a better tale. This description might lead you to think that Sterling was a loud-mouthed, pushy narcissist, and at times, he could be. In private, Sterling would refer to the old men of Allied Command as fossilised shit, and would ridicule what he saw as the staid tactics and systems of the regular military. But friends and colleagues also described the lanky six-foot-six David Sterling as unceasingly polite in his manner of speaking. Sterling never demanded anything of anyone. Rather, he just sort of confidently made suggestions of you. Sterling's idea was for a band of saboteurs and assassins who could work behind enemy lines. The unit would not be a part of the regular army and would not take direct day-to-day commands from the top brass. The new regiment would set its own hours, use its own methods, and have its own command structure. This would allow the unit to be adaptive, responsive, agile, and creative. Creativity, as you imagine, doesn't thrive in a highly regimented organisation like the military. Sterling's proposed new unit would sidestep that problem by being organisationally isolated from the rest of the army. Major General Ritchie took the idea to Field Marshal Offleck, the man in charge of the entire North Africa campaign. Offleck approved it, giving Sterling a promotion to captain in the process. David Sterling was just a 26-year-old lieutenant, someone who would never normally have had such easy access to the very top of the armed services. But he was rich, well-connected, and upper class. That gave him the kind of privilege other soldiers could only dream of. He had a bit of an issue, though. Sterling promised Offleck that the new unit would be able to parachute onto enemy airfields and knock out grounded aircraft in time for a major offensive that November. That gave Sterling just four months to recruit an entirely new unit, teach them to parachute, and plan a major attack on German airfields. Sterling's audacious, somewhat arrogant approach to the creation of his new unit would become a defining characteristic of how it operated. Time and time again, SAS members would take terrific risks, often in the name of king and country, but also in the name of petty rivalry. It was an attitude summed up perfectly in their motto, Who Dares Wins. Before we go any further, it would be remiss of me not to very briefly outline the broader picture of North Africa in World War II. Britain had been in Egypt since the 1880s, though it was never formally a colony. France had control over the northwest, and the Italians had control of Libya and the Horn of Africa. In June of 1940, France was mere days away from surrendering to the Nazi invasion, which would result in the creation of the German puppet state known as Vichy France. The Italian fascist government, ideologically aligned with the Nazis, allied themselves with Germany and declared war on Great Britain. The Italian forces in Libya then consolidated their forces away from their western border because the French were no longer a threat and set about invading British Egypt. The Italians had 200,000 fighting men compared to a mere 40,000 Allied soldiers, which included British, 
Australians, Kiwis, and continental Europeans. Despite their massive numerical advantage, the Italians got smashed to bits. The Allies halted their advance, encircled them, and captured or killed nearly 130,000 Italians. They took vast swathes of territory off Italy, including the valuable port of Tobruk. In early 1941, the Nazis responded by creating the Africa Corps, under the command of Erwin Rommel. The Allies, no doubt feeling a, a touch arrogant after their remarkable victory, badly underestimated the capacity of the Germans and found themselves easily swept out of Libya, with the exception of the now besieged stronghold of Tobruk, which remained in the hands of Australian infantry, the famed Rats of Tobruk. The situation was looking grim for the Allies in Egypt, but on June 22nd, Germany invaded the Soviet Union. This saw the focus of the war shift away from North Africa and towards the Eastern Front, depriving the Africa Corps of the valuable resources they needed to properly engage Allied forces in Africa. For all his brilliance, the German commander Rommel would from now on be hamstrung by a lack of men, tanks, and petrol. The Allies now had a real chance of victory. Now back to David Sterling. Sterling had signed up to the Officers' Corps with no real military experience. His tutors at Officers' School had noted that he was, quote, an irresponsible and unremarkable soldier. His partying was so wild, there are legends about him knocking out cab drivers and sleeping off hangovers at military hospitals with the aid of an oxygen pump. Nonetheless, Sterling was charming, intelligent, persuasive, and well-connected. These connections had gotten him into the Commandos, which was supposed to be a regiment for the very best of the British Army. The Commandos were formed with similar intentions to the SAS, a highly mobile band of elite soldiers that could sneak behind enemy lines. But the regular army was never quite sure what to do with them. They were employed in several relatively traditional battles and performed quite well but had suffered terrible casualties in the process. The Latani River operation saw the commandos lose 130 men from the 400 that saw action. These were unsustainably high casualties from such a well-equipped and trained unit. By June of 1941, the commandos were in the process of being broken up. The first thing Sterling needed was to get recruiting. He needed both officers and soldiers to volunteer for his new unit, and that proved to be a challenge. Though Sterling was very well connected among the higher-ups, most of the regular soldiers had a low opinion of him. Other officers weren't fond of him going around and trying to steal their best men either. His first port of call was Lieutenant John Steele Luz, or just Jock to his friends. Jock Luz had been experimenting with commando parachute drops in the months leading up to Sterling meeting with Ritchie. Sterling had somehow gotten himself on one of these flights, in spite of Luz's strong reservations about Sterling as a soldier. Sterling landed heavily and sustained a spinal injury, resulting in temporary blindness and paralysis of the legs that lasted about a month. Jock Luz was a very different man to Sterling. He was an Australian with a working-class background that had gotten himself an Oxford scholarship. He was politically conservative, personally disciplined, and judgmental. 
Prior to the war, he had strong Nazi sympathies. He took a dozen trips to Berlin, attended Nazi fundraisers, and very nearly married a German girl. His faith in fascist ideologies only fell away when Hitler assassinated scores of his political enemies at the Night of the Long Knives. Physically, Luz looked a bit like Errol Flynn's evil twin. Sterling desperately needed Luz to make the new unit work, and he made a sea voyage to the besieged Tobruk to visit Luz, who was stationed there with the remnants of the commando. Luz's first answer was a hard no. Luz was resentful that the higher-ups had rejected parachute raids when they were his idea, but accepted them when they were Sterling's. He hated knowing that Sterling had been given a promotion to captain for no reason other than his privileged status as a member of the ruling class. But he also didn't trust Sterling. He saw him as a soft, lazy drunkard that would never follow through. Luz also wanted to know the particulars of Sterling's plans. How many men? Where would they be based? What kind of aircraft would be used? What sort of training was required and how long would this all take? Sterling didn't have those answers. He was much more of a dreamer than a planner. Luz chose to stay on in Tobruk, fighting with men who he saw as real soldiers. Sterling left, even more certain that he needed Luz by his side. He realised that he didn't have the day-to-day discipline or organisational skills Luz did, and those skills were absolutely vital for the running of the new unit. He decided to show Luz how serious he was and set about recruiting 50 more soldiers and officers. He returned to Debrook twice more to plea with Luz to join him, and on that third visit, not so much impressed with Sterling, but with some of the men he'd recruited, Luz accepted Sterling's request to join the SAS as his second in command. The two men working in tandem formed a perfect team. Sterling's charm and connections got him access to recruits and equipment, and he was able to allay any concerns about the progress of the new unit that his superiors may have had. Jock Luz trained the men and ran the camp on a day-to-day basis. They formed a classic front-of-house, back-of-house double team. The men Sterling had recruited were the odds and ends of the old commando, misfits and iconoclasts that rankled at the idea of being returned to regular military units. They included Reggie Seekings, a half-blind, dyslexic farmer's son with dreams of being a champion boxer, Bill Fraser, a witty little Scotsman who was heavily rumoured to be gay, Ian McGonagall, a chipper Catholic Irishman who was best friends with a highly conservative Protestant that hated Catholics. His name was Robert Blair Maine. Maine, known to Paddy as most, was a well-educated Northern Irishman from a devout Protestant family. He held a law degree and was a terrific athlete. He was a top amateur boxer and played international rugby union. He was capped in several tests for the British and Irish Lions. His teammates regarded him as one of the most fearsome men they'd ever played with, his hulking 100kg, 6'3 frame dominating the field of play. Maine was recruited to the commando and served at Latani River, leading his unit in the capture of over 100 men in his first ever combat patrol. Maine was awkward socially. He mumbled and had trouble looking at people in the eye when he spoke. He was shy and completely deferential around women. Until he drank. 
and he drank a lot. When boozed up, Maine could become terrifyingly violent. In 1938, he threw a man through a pane glass window. On New Year's Eve 1940, he chose to stay in and drink alone rather than head out with the other men in his unit and then opened fire on those men when they returned home to the barracks. In early 1941, he got into an argument with a nightclub owner in Cairo, pulled out a pistol, and told the man to start dancing as Maine shot at his feet. His crowning glory, though, was the incident of the evening of June 21st, 1941. Maine was playing cards with Ian McGonagall and took offence to something his acting commanding officer, Charles Napier, had said. Maine later followed Napier back to his tent and beat the hell out of him. Though in Maine's defence, there are allegations that Napier had shot Maine's dog. Quoting Lieutenant Colonel Geoffrey Keyes. June 23, 1941. Had to produce Paddy before the divisional commander, and he is rocketed and removed. Very sorry to lose him, as he did awfully well in battle and is a great fighter. He is, however, an extremely truculent Irishman when he is drink-taken, and he's as strong as a bull. The new unit, 1SAS, or L Detachment, set up a small operating base in Cabrit and began their specialised training. Jock Luz ran the camp, with Paddy Main as his second. Punishment for slacking during training meant going around with Main in the boxing ring. It was August, the hottest month of the year. The daytime average maximum was 38 degrees Celsius. The men did 35-mile timed marches with 20-kilogram packs and had to return from these marches with water remaining in their canteens. They did live jumps off the backs of moving trucks to simulate parachute jumping, but that got cancelled due to a large number of broken legs. They trained for night missions by navigating a mock battlefield blindfolded, crawling on their hands and knees, identifying objects and terrain by touch alone. Luz had a hard time commanding the unit by himself. He lacked social graces, and at one point told the entire unit that they were all bloody soft. He was very nearly beaten to a pulp on the spot. It took Lou some time to understand that the men Sterling had assembled were very individualistic, and unlike normal soldiers, were liable to talk back to their commanding officers. They were excellent warriors, but not necessarily great soldiers. That's why they had chosen to join a less structured unit like the SAS, in the first place. For all his hard work back in Cairo, Sterling was having no luck getting decent equipment. The planes they were given by the RAF were old Bristol Bombays. They were slow, lumbering, underpowered craft with balance issues. If anyone needed to use the toilet, they had to inform the pilot, because one extra man at the back of the plane would completely throw off the centre of gravity. Sterling had trouble with basic supplies for the camp as well. Jock Luz solved that problem by carrying out a night raid on a nearby New Zealand camp. They stole tables, carpets, fuel, ammunition, food, and a piano. This sort of hijinks would go on to be something of a calling card for the SAS, who have a reputation for elaborate pranks, such as the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident of 1980, where the SAS managed to convince a neighbouring US Air Force base that they were under attack by flying saucers. By the time Sterling returned from Cairo, it was very much Luz's unit. 
Sterling felt he was commanding officer in name only. It was now early October, and Sterling took it upon himself to lead the men in the parachute jumps. Parachuting from a plane was a relatively new concept, and the technology was primitive. The Bristol Bombays used static line chutes, so instead of pulling at a ripcord, the men had static lines anchored to the aircraft. When a man jumped, their line went taut and opened the chute up around 50 feet below the plane. The drops occurred at a very low altitude of just 800 feet, and there were no reserve chutes, so if anything went wrong, death was certain. On the 16th of October, a Bombay took up three men for a practice drop. The first two men, 21-year-old Ken Warburton and his friend Joseph Duffy, made the jump. But the third man, Billy Morris, was stopped by the RAF trainer on board. The officer had noticed, a moment too late for the others, that a new linkage on those static lines had failed under repeated changes in air pressure. Warburton and Duffy's parachutes didn't open, and they fell to their deaths. Maine heard them screaming as they fell. The deaths of the two boys put a terrible toll on morale, but the following day, Sterling and Luz ordered the entire unit to a practice jump. Sterling was the first man out of the plane, and every other man followed. It was a galvanizing moment for both the squad and Sterling's leadership. After the war, Sterling would admit that he hated parachuting. For a final test, Sterling ordered his men on a dummy mission to place stickers on aircraft at the Allied Heliopolis airfield under the cover of darkness some 90 miles away. The airfield commander was one of Sterling's many doubters, so Sterling bet the man 10 bucks that the SAS could sneak in undetected. They marched at night and lay hidden under camouflage tarps during the day. The men only had four gallons of water with them, the heat and thirst frayed tempers, and Maine eventually snapped at Private Chestworth, who had been complaining loudly the entire trip. Maine grabbed him by the throat, held him over a cliff, and said, Not one more word out of you. After three nights' march, they arrived at Heliopolis, snuck onto the airfield, and without raising a hint of suspicion among the guards, placed stickers on 45 aircraft, many of them more than once. The operation was a roaring success and exactly what Sterling needed to get Cairo off his back. On the 18th of November, five Bombays filled with SAS servicemen were scheduled to conduct drops south of the Tamini and Gazala airfields with the intention of destroying the newly deployed fighter squadrons the Germans had in place and then to rendezvous with the Long Range Desert Group, a division of highly trained scouts who would then drive them home. The idea was to time the raids with a major Allied ground offensive, Operation Crusader, which aimed to relieve the siege of Tobruk. The weather that evening was appalling. A major storm was scheduled to hit right over the target area. With powerful winds that would make safe jumping impossible, Sterling was encouraged to call it off by higher-ups. But he was concerned that if the raid didn't go ahead, there was a risk that the entire project might get shut down. He had made some very boastful claims about the SAS and felt immense pressure to prove himself as something other than a boastful drunk. He couldn't let the doubters be proven right. He explained the dilemma to the rest of the unit and they unanimously agreed to go ahead with the mission. At the time of this decision, 
David Sterling was 26, Maine was 26, and Luz was the eldest statesman of the group at 28. There were no wise old men to turn to for counsel. It was entirely their call. The drop was a disaster. 33 men were lost, and one of the Bombays was shot down by a Messerschmitt 109F, the new German fighter the SAS had been tasked with destroying. It crash-landed with two fatalities, and the rest of that squad was captured. Most of the men who didn't return were blown away in the storm or suffered crippling injuries on landing, broken legs and backs. They had to be abandoned in the middle of the desert to die. One of them was Lieutenant McGonagall. Paddy Main sustained a chronic, degenerative back injury that would haunt him the rest of his days. On top of the appalling casualty rate, the equipment had been dropped separately and was now scattered across the Sahara by the high winds. Sterling gave up on raiding altogether and settled for a reconnaissance mission. Maine was able to scrounge together enough bombs and able men and try to proceed. They marched for three hours to the nearest airfields only to get caught in a flash flood which ruined the detonators on their explosives. So began the long, painful walk back to the rendezvous point with the long-range desert group. 36 miles across open desert in the middle of the night. The men were soaking wet and freezing without rations or equipment. When they met with the LRDG, Sterling explained what a disaster the raid had been to Captain David Lloyd Owen. Owen found himself a little confused by the parachute drops. To him, they seemed unnecessary and overly elaborate. He pointed out to Sterling that if the LRDG were able to pick them up, there was no reason they couldn't drop them off. The LRDG was born out of a club of peacetime British officers dedicated to exploring the Sahara Desert. They were expert survivalists. They made maps, created their own systems for navigation, modified vehicles for desert use, they knew how to camouflage large vehicles against desert terrain. They were absolute masters of the Saharan landscape. By the time of their first rendezvous with the SAS, the LRDG had been operating well inside German territory for over a year, sometimes three to four hundred miles in. On return to Cabrit, Sterling found himself and the unit given a reprieve. Operation Crusader had not gone as planned, and though Tobruk had been relieved, the Allies had suffered substantial tank losses. No one at headquarters had time to notice that the little experimental division had lost 30 men. The SAS decamped and moved to Yalo, a rather unpleasant-sounding oasis in the middle of the endless sand dunes of northern Libya. From there, Sterling planned four raids. He and Maine would hit the airfields of Tamit and Sirt, while Jock Luz and Bill Fraser would hit the aerodromes of Aghaila and Ajadibya. The journey from Yalo to Sirt took days of driving through the blasted hellscape that is the Sahara Desert. 40 degree heat with not a landmark for hundreds of miles, just a shimmering horizon bordered by sand and sky. On board the first convoy is Corporal Mike Sadler of the LRDG. At just 22 years of age, his job was to navigate Sterling's men across the desert. He would note average speeds, take compass bearings, and fix his position at night by the stars. He had only been in the job a little under a year, but had come to be regarded as one of the best navigators in the unit, 
and would consistently be able to deliver the SAS to within a few miles of their target. The trip in wasn't without incident. They got bogged several times and had a brief skirmish with an Italian fighter. But by the evening of the 11th, the SAS were ready to begin their assault. Sterling opted to hit Cert, whilst Maine and his crew attacked a previously undiscovered Italian airfield slightly to the west. At Cert, Sterling was delighted to find no fencing around the aerodrome and 30 Italian bombers parked on the tarmac. This was finally his big chance to prove himself, but he opted to hold off. He knew Maine wouldn't be in position until the following evening, and he couldn't go in now without compromising Maine. The following night, right before Sterling and his crew were set to lay their bombs, every single bomber at CERT took off, leaving them without targets. Sterling marched back to the LRDG rendezvous, frustrated, depressed, and unsure of the future of the unit. Over at Airfield B, Paddy Main, Reggie Seekings, and three other men were laying in wait. They had found a squadron of Fiat C-42s. They waited until late evening and then crept up to the airfield perimeter. They spied out the machine gun nests, the number of guards, and the routes the sentries took. Just as they were about to sneak in and lay their bombs, the squad found a hut full of off-duty airmen, drinking and playing cards. Maine waited for the guards to pass, crawled up to the front door of the hut, readied his Thompson machine gun, kicked in the door and mowed down every man inside. He lobbed a few grenades in to finish off the stragglers before bolting back out into the desert night. He killed between 20 and 30 men. In his official report, he said, Some Italians were followed, and the hut they came out of was attacked by submachine gun and pistol fire, and bombs were placed on and around it. There appeared to be roughly 30 inhabitants. Damage inflicted? Unknown. Reg Seekings had a more colourful take. As soon as Paddy cut loose, the whole place went mad. Everything they had, including Tracer, they had fixed lines of fire a couple of feet from the ground. Chesworth came slivering over to us on all fours. I can still see him getting to his feet, pulling in his ass as the Tracer fire ripped past his back, missing him by inches. On a signal from Paddy, we got the hell out. After a surprisingly short period of time, the camp settled back down, and Maine reasoned they would never expect a second attack so soon. Once more, they crept to the airfield, keeping a watchful eye out for guards, and crossed over to the aircraft. They spent over an hour stealthily laying their bombs on planes, fuel, and ammunition. They found they were one bomb short of the final plane, but Maine was not prepared to miss a chance at perfection. He opened the cockpit, got in, and tore apart the instrument panel with his hands before he and the rest of the squad absconded into the night. Quote, We hadn't gone 50 yards when that first plane went up. We stopped to look, but a second one went up near us and we began to run. After a while, we stopped to take another glance. What a sight! Planes exploding all over and the terrific roar of petrol and bombs going up. The ride back to Yalo had mixed feelings for Captain Sterling. His ideas had been borne out, and he could now prove to his superiors the value of the unit. But his lack of personal success in the field dug at him, 
doubly so because Maine seems to have spent the entire three days back across the desert teasing him about his failure. Sterling may have been in charge, but sometimes he didn't feel like it. The bravado of some of the men under his command had him feeling insecure about his masculinity, and none of them made him feel smaller than Paddy Maine did. These insecurities weren't without basis. His men did indeed look at Maine as the natural leader of the unit. To quote Sergeant Fred White, Sterling was too much of a gentleman. In our job, you needed to be a killer. The other two squads had mixed results. Losers had been spotted by guards and were nearly surrounded and captured before breaking through the enemy line with a mixture of grenades and machine gun fire. Bill Fraser, on the other hand, did even better than Maine. He and his team advanced painstakingly slowly on their airfield over the course of several days, before, with perfect stealth, they stepped through a carefully cut barbed wire fence and laid mines on 37 grounded aircraft. With planes and fuels exploding all around them, Fraser and his men calmly walked back to the LRDG patrol. They were clearly visible in the light of the enormous fire they'd lit, but the Germans were far too busy trying to douse the flames to pay them any attention. On return to Yalo, Sterling prepared them a massive Christmas feast. With just a few small operations, the SAS had destroyed 61 aircraft without suffering a single casualty. Maine was jealous of Fraser's work overshadowing his own and began to relentlessly mock the man for being gay. On Christmas Eve, Sterling and his men set out again for the same airfields. This time, he took Reg Seekings with him and paired him with Johnny Cooper, a well-to-do public schoolboy, which in England meant private elite school. Seekings and Cooper hated each other and had been in a number of fights since joining the unit. Maine hit Tammet once more and took out another 27 planes. Their timed mines went off slightly early, alerting the Italians to their presence and illuminating them to enemy machine gun nests. Sterling and his men arrived at Sirt in the early evening, but the Italians had really upped their security since that last visit, with a large barbed wire fence now ringing the airfield. In their attempts to find a way around it, the SAS were spotted by a sentry, barely made it back to the LRDG trucks, were shot at by their own men, and spent the next five hours in running battles with Axis patrols, gunning down armoured cars and blowing up trucks at checkpoints. They inflicted massive damage on the pursuing Italians, and Seekings and Cooper forged a close bond in combat. From then on, they would volunteer for ops together. But Sterling took no solace in this consolation prize, because in the West, he could see the blazes of Maine's handiwork at Tamit. On return to Yalo, Sterling had no time to sulk. There was no word from either Fraser or Loser's squads, and no report of enemy airfields being hit by saboteurs. With each passing day, the sense of dread hanging over the camp grew until finally, on New Year's Day, a single battered truck rolled into the camp. Loser's squad had found their airfield largely deserted. They bombed the two planes they did find and left to meet up with Fraser. But the following day, a Messerschmitt 110, a slow but powerfully armed fighter bomber, found them exposed in a valley. The plane dove at them and opened up with its four frontward-mounted machine guns. In a running battle over the next hour, 
the Germans destroyed four LRDG trucks. Jock Luz was struck in the leg and killed. The men buried him in the desert. His body has never been recovered. The loss of the LRDG trucks also prevented the men from making rendezvous with Bill Fraser, rendering the plucky Scotsman officially missing in action. Sterling was stunned at the loss and wasn't sure how he could continue without Luz. In letters home, Sterling would write, Jock could far more genuinely claim to be the founder of the SAS than I. There is no doubt that any success the unit had achieved up to the time of Jock's death and after it was and is almost wholly due to Jock's work. Sterling now needed another officer of Luz's drive, conviction and practicality. He hired a new explosives expert to take on Luz's role as makeshift demolitions man and appointed Maine in charge of training. This did not go down well. Maine wanted to be in the field and directly accused Sterling of taking him out of combat because Sterling was jealous of Maine's success. Maine was, of course, partly right, but Sterling would later admit that taking his best fighter out of the field was stupid. But in his defence, he had no one else on hand who both commanded the respect of the men and knew what was required to be an SAS operative. For their commanding role in the SAS raids, Sterling and Maine both received promotions and distinguished service orders. Maine became a captain and Sterling a major. The success of the unit attracted more than just honours. Sterling was given 100 new recruits, including 50 free Frenchmen that had been trained as parachutists. Sterling set off for a sortie against the port of, and I hope I'm saying this right, Bora. He took 15 SAS men with him, but the raid was something of a mess. They were scouted out by enemy aircraft and lost their two radio men in the ensuing firefight. When they did arrive at the port, it turned out the information Sterling had received in planning for the op was bad, and there were no enemy cargo ships in port. He then settled for laying mines on fuel dumps and radio towers, which did some incidental damage, but not the devastating blow they'd hoped for. On the road back, they were ambushed by Italian guards. Their truck was peppered with machine gun fire, but the driver floored it, and with a combination of grenades and their own machine gun fire, they smashed through the ambush, leaving a trail of dead Italians in their wake. Back at Yalo, Maine had not responded well to his new role. Other men had been leading the training in Sterling's absence, whilst Maine sat in his tent drinking whiskey and reading Penguin paperbacks. When Sterling confronted him, Maine would only grunt in reply to his questions. Sterling saw how pointless it would be trying to mould Maine into something he wasn't, and promptly put him back into rotation. It's also possible that Maine was sulking because Sterling hadn't made him the official second in command. Maine began to think that Sterling was passing him up in favour of someone from Sterling's own social class. Sterling actually had been courting several officers from outside the unit, though as near as I can tell, he never actually named anyone officially. Considering Maine's reaction to being temporarily benched, it's hard to blame Sterling for that decision. How could someone as temperamental as Maine have ever dealt with the commanders at British HQ? Sterling appointed Pat Riley a big American boxing champ who'd been injured in the first parachute drop as the new training officer. And on the 10th of January, he received some wonderful news. Bill Fraser and his unit stumbled into the camp. 
they had spent the last two weeks marching and hitchhiking across the desert. Sunburned to a crisp and nearly dead from dehydration, Fraser and his boys enjoyed a lengthy break, convalescing from their ordeal. Epic marches like Fraser's weren't uncommon in the Desert War. SAS men frequently got lost or missed the meeting with the LRDG. And even when things did go right, operations often called for overland treks of 100 kilometres or more. SAS men were extremely fit and tough, but their incredible stamina wasn't just down to hard work and conditioning. Like all elite combat forces, including ones currently in operation today, powerful stimulants were often handed out to soldiers to keep them active in the field. The men in these stories would have frequently taken methamphetamine-like combat drugs. On the 15th of March, Sterling hit the port of Benghazi, with three other teams striking nearby airfields at the same time. Once again, poor luck ruined Sterling's part of the operation, with a faulty canoe preventing his squad from laying mines on enemy ships, and once again, the only man to do any real damage was Paddy Maine, who blew up 15 more aircraft. At the rendezvous, Maine celebrated by getting drunk and playing with his guns. Mike Blackman, an SAS intelligence officer, put this in his mission report. On the evening of the 26th, the party went into action with rum and lime, rum and tea, rum and omelette and just plain rum, whilst Captain Maine went through the weird rites of demonstrating how one should not fire his guns and not take to pieces at night. Machine guns, light machine guns, Tommy guns, pistols, and God knows what other intricate pieces of mechanism. Casualties, incredible as it may seem, none. Sterling planned a follow-up operation that May, this time choosing to exclude Maine in favour of Randolph Churchill, the chubby son of Winston Churchill and a good friend of Sterling's. Here, Sterling had a chance to get into the ear of the Prime Minister himself. Plus, he was still feeling a touch petty about Maine's success. Sterling's truck snapped a control rod on the way in, and the Italian guards could hear the racket the truck made from miles away. A car chase ensued, and after 20 minutes speeding around on busted suspension, the SAS men screamed into town at a lazy 80 miles an hour. The plan was the same as the previous raid to paddle out into the harbour and lay mines on enemy ships, except this time they would use inflatable rafts rather than those unreliable canoes. The team found a quiet spot, cut through the barbed wire fence ringing the harbour, dodged some sentries, climbed down a gantry, navigated the cargo containers, and then spent 20 minutes carefully carrying the raft down to the water's edge, where it failed to inflate. They threw away the raft, went all the way back to the truck, got the other raft, dodged the same sentries, climbed down the gantry, snuck back down to the pier, only to find that this raft was also punctured. They had spent so long messing about with these broken rafts that dawn had begun to break, so the team found a bombed-out house to hide in until nightfall. One of their number, a man named McLean, was fluent in Italian and could pull off a convincing accent. He'd been challenged by guards several times the previous night, but he'd been able to convince them that he was an officer. Sterling and he took the chance to wander around Benghazi in broad daylight, making notes of targets to blow up on future raids. To quote Corporal Cooper, If you can think of something the enemy would consider an impossible stupidity and carry it out with determination, you can get away with it through sheer cheek. 
To add to the farce of the Benghazi mission, Sterling, who was driving the truck, managed to roll it on the way back. McLean and Churchill were seriously injured, and an embedded journalist who was with him was killed outright. Not deterred by his recent setbacks, Sterling planned a large-scale, multi-pronged attack on the Benghazi area. On the 12th of June 1942, eight SAS teams hit five different sites, and the RAF was to coordinate those assaults with a bombing raid on Benghazi itself. The operation was a beautiful mess. The team of fresh French recruits at the main Burka airfield went too early, and a full-blown firefight broke out between them and the defenders. The French would go on to have a terrible night. Their undercover operation, using German Jews as infiltrators, had been exposed by a spy ring in Cairo, and several other squads were thwarted by sheer bad luck, being caught out by German patrols at the worst possible moments. They fought valiantly and took out some 30 German planes, but they also suffered terrible casualties. Main's team had to hunker down in a ditch as RAF bombers somehow mistook the secondary airfield at Burka for their main target of Benghazi, and they were actively bombing Burka, whilst Main and his men were supposed to be in the field. It was sheer dumb luck they weren't blown to bits by their own bombers. Main noted in his diary how an RAF bomber was shot down and exploded just a few hundred metres from their position. This was supposed to be a discreet midnight raid on a moonless night, allowing the squads to sneak right up under the noses of the enemy guards who would be blinded by the darkness. Instead, the airfield was lit up by flames and the SAS could be seen as clear as day. When the bombing subsided, Maine and his men placed just one mine before being caught. Maine killed a few of the guards before retreating and the squad was forced to split up, spending the entire next day playing hide-and-seek with German patrols. Maine came within inches of getting caught as a squad of Germans came right up to the ditch he was lying in and Corporal Lilly was forced to strangle an Italian soldier with his bare hands to prevent the man from sounding the alarm. Quote, It's funny killing a chap with your bare hands. I can still see his white face and dark brown eyes clearly. His cap had toppled off in the struggle, so I, I, I put it back over his face, you know, to make it look more natural. Sterling's crew spent the day before the raid hiding on a rocky outcrop above the Benina airfield. Benina was an important engineering and repair depot. At 11.30pm, 15 minutes before the bombers were to hit, his three-man team snuck down from the hills and infiltrated the facility. They lay their minds on fuel tanks and trucks, silently gliding down corridors and gantries, listening out for the footfalls of the German guards. When they arrived at the first hangar, the heavy doors groaned under their own weight. Then silence. Not a single guard had noticed the massive steel doors were now open to the night air. The hangar was full of fighters and bombers in for repair. They planted mines on every single last one of them. They wound up hitting four hangars in total. As they were leaving, Sterling spotted a barracks. The squad moved silently to the door, nudged it open, and found it full of sleeping Germans. Sterling pulled out a grenade, removed the pin, and said to himself, Share this among you as he rolled the bomb into the room. The squad bolted from the aerodrome 
as the remaining guards ran to help their dying comrades. Sterling would later be overcome with guilt for what he'd done, saying that his attack on the barracks was tantamount to murder. He was also critical of the decision from a tactical point of view. The slaughter of the sleeping Germans may have alerted the base guards to the mines on their planes. Sterling was taking bigger and bigger risks with each raid. He had to prove his credentials as a man and a soldier, so increasingly, he led from the front. From the same overlook they had waited out the day, the squad, just three men including Sterling, looked back over the Benina aerodrome as it erupted in flames, devastating the entire compound. At the rendezvous, Sterling had to brag. It felt great for him to finally get one over on Maine, who scoffed at Sterling's story about the devastation he had laid at the German repair depot. Maine flat out told him that he didn't believe a word of it. Sterling dared him to go and have a look himself, and that's exactly what they did. They got a truck, loaded it up with a heavy machine gun or two, and once darkness fell, they went back up the road to the Burka airfield, which was now crawling with German patrols, furious at the SAS for the deaths of their comrades. Sterling would later say, It was foolish, of course, but that's how Paddy and I were. There are differing accounts, but as near as I can tell, there were six men in the truck, Maine and Sterling sitting up front, with Seekings Warburton or Story Cooper and Lily in the rear along with an Austrian Jew named Kahane, a 20-year veteran of the German military. He was a handy guy to have around. Anytime the men came upon an Italian patrol at night, he simply shouted, German, and they'd let the SAS trucks right on through. Near the entrance to the Burka area, they came upon a roadblock. In Maine's words, it was, quote, a bloody big contraption like a five-barred gate that was mixed up with a mile or so of barbed wire. Kahana yelled at one of the guards to let him in, but the guard was on strict orders to be thorough. Ten men with MP40s, a type of German submachine gun, along with a sergeant, came out to inspect the truck. Maine's diary records the following dialogue. Quote, I gathered later that the conversation went like this. Fritz. What's the password? Carl the Austrian. How the fuck do we know what the fucking password is and don't ask for our fucking identity cards either? They're lost. We've been fighting for the past 70 hours against these fucking Tommies. Our car was destroyed and we were lucky to capture this British truck to get back at all. Some fool put us on the wrong road. We've been driving for the past two hours and then you fuckers, sitting there in your asses in Benghazi in a nice safe job, stop us. So hurry up and get that fucking gate open. But Fritz wasn't satisfied, so he walked to about three feet from my car on my side. I'm sitting there with my colt on my lap, and I remember it's not cocked, so I pull it back. And Jerry has that look on his face, and then orders the gates to be opened. Quoting Corporal Cooper, The German must have realised that he would be the first to die if they detained us, so he opened the gate and let us through. Sterling was sure they were wandering into a trap. The sergeant on duty would have certainly radioed ahead that the SAS had just crossed the checkpoint. There are mixed accounts about what happened next. Cooper says that they made their way to a truck stop and fixed bombs to anything of value. 
story remembers them gunning down a cafe filled with German soldiers. The official report stated they shot up a few trucks and left many of the enemy dead and wounded. Main said that, quote, We drove on at any rate and came on a lot of tents and trucks and people. We got our machine guns up from the bottom of the truck and started blowing the hell out of them. Short, snappy, and exhilarating. No one seems to agree on what damage they did or did not do, but everyone can agree on the escape. Maine cut the lights on the truck and dashed across the desert towards a dry riverbed with a steep bank on the far side, which would cut them off from the pursuing Germans. But as he sped along, he saw lights in the distance. The Germans had figured out the plan and were heading to cut them off the pass. Maine floored it and their Chevy skittered over the near bank and slapped into that flat riverbed. They sped across to the other side with the Germans in hot pursuit, bullets whizzing by their ears, but Maine had managed to miss the route up a cliff. The others had to get out and push the truck up the bank, getting it up onto the road just before the Germans got to them. They clambered in and were driving up the road to safety when Bob Lilly heard a fuse. One of their bombs had ignited. Get out quick, he yelled. Maine and Sterling rolled out the front doors while the rest bailed out the back. Cooper said, The explosion bowled us over. The truck was blown to kingdom come. They marched all night and most of the next day back to the LRDG camp. It was difficult to say how effective their raids had been. Sterling wasn't sure himself, putting the number of destroyed planes somewhere between 35 and 70. Casualties were high, though, particularly among the French. In the broader war, the Germans had the Allies backed into a corner. They were now just 60 miles from Alexandria, having retaken Tobruk in the process, and the Allies were preparing for the possibility of losing Cairo. In what was called Ash Wednesday, sensitive Allied documents across the city were ordered burned, sending plumes of smoke into the Egyptian sky. The British 8th Army was to make it stand at a little railway station called El Alamein and the SAS were tasked with another round of sorties to soften up Axis air power. The enemy had begun to wise up on their tactics of sneaking in and bombing planes. Sterling needed a new approach. He was given a bunch of American Jeeps. They were small, nimble, robust, and unlike many of the big Fords and Chevys, came with four-wheel drive as standard. They were the perfect new weapon for a hit-and-run raiding squadron. They also managed to get hold of some obsolete Vickers K machine guns. Originally designed to be mounted onto aircraft for use against, well, other aircraft, the Vickers could pump out an astonishing 1,200 rounds a minute. Introduced in 1935, it was quickly phased out in favour of other guns, meaning they were free to a good home. The SAS began bolting pairs of them onto the passenger sides of their Jeeps. Here's what a single Vickers K sounded like. On July 4th, six SAS teams headed back into German territory for fresh raids. Three were hitting Buka, one for Sidi Barani, one for El Dabra, and Sterling and Main Squad hit the main target, Bagush. They headed north until they hit the main coastal road and amazingly ran into no Axis vehicles during their entire eight-hour drive. They settled down outside Bagush at dusk and waited for midnight. Sterling used his truck to set up a roadblock, 
while Maine and a few other men snuck into the airbase. They had time to lay 14 bombs before they were caught and shot at. Maine blew the guards up with grenades, while the rest of the crew mined the remaining aircraft, 40 in total. They escaped into the night and waited for their planes to explode. But something went wrong. Only 22 bombs went off. The detonators had somehow gotten wet. It's enough to break your heart, lamented Maine. Sterling wasn't prepared to leave those undamaged planes sitting on the tarmac, and in the spirit of the unit, he improvised. He had two of those new jeeps with Vickers K guns on them, and he opted to go back in and see just how much damage a Vickers K could do to a plane. As the German garrison desperately tried to put out the burning aviation fuel, Maine and Sterling casually rolled right back into the base and strafed the remaining planes. Shoot low, go for the tanks, Sterling ordered. The Vickers Ks ate the grounded planes alive, tearing away at their fuselages and lighting up their petrol tanks. They set all the remaining planes ablaze before the guards were able to respond, at which point they simply tore off into the still desert night. Sterling was thrilled. They hit Eldaba airfield for 14 planes, then Fuka again for another 20-odd. The Fuka raid has a grim anecdote attached. On rendezvous with the LRDG, Major General David Lloyd Owen picked Maine up. When he asked Paddy how the raid went, he replied, A bit trickier tonight. They had posted a sentry on nearly every bloody plane. I had to knife the sentries before I could place the bombs. Maine bombed 20 planes that evening. Paddy's brother Douglas would later say this of him. Personally, I think he rather did enjoy killing. For him, it was very much like stalking a deer. Sterling got 20 more jeeps from headquarters and started practicing formations. The jeeps were spaced just five yards apart. The SAS spent a week perfecting this horrific ballet of firepower like equestrian dressage with a heavy machine gun. Quoting Corporal Cooper, the rehearsal was even more terrifying than the actual attack. It was decided the jeeps would drive to the target abreast and then fan out into a broad arrowhead shape to ensure they didn't accidentally shoot each other. The target was City Einisch, a major German airfield. They set off just after dark and drove for four hours under a slightly moonlit night. Sterling grew tense on the journey. His demeanour had begun to change in recent weeks. The empathy, patience and polite nature he had been known for had eroded and had been replaced by a, a more agitated man prone to frustration and anger. As the mission grew just a few minutes behind schedule, he began to chide Mike Sadler's navigation skills. As soon as he'd finished, the convoy of jeeps drove over the crest of a hill and they could see the lights of City Hanesh shimmering at them in the desert night. The jeeps fanned out, bouncing and shifting on the uneven ground, struggling to maintain formation. Sterling was suddenly blinded by a brilliant light and his heart sank in terror. They were lit up by a floodlight. He was about to order a full retreat and he could see that it was actually a bomber coming in for landing. Sterling gave the order. 20 twin Vickers K machine guns tore the plane to pieces midair. It skittered down the runway and burst into flame. The jeeps funneled out into their arrowhead. They moved into the airfield and strafed the grounded planes. 
the terrible sound of their machine guns stunning the sleeping Germans. Plane after plane exploded. The heat from the burning fuel flew past them as a hot wind. The Germans returned fire, but they were caught so completely by surprise that no real defence was mounted. A single anti-air gun kept fire on the group. Sterling's jeep was destroyed by it, but he was quickly picked up by his men. To quote Reggie Seekings, We drove right up the middle of the runway at 20 miles an hour, and either side was an assortment of planes. It was like a duck shoot, just pouring fire into those junkers and stukers, and watching the bullets tear through their fuselage, then bang, they'd explode. Maine saw a terrified soldier hiding under a flaming bomber before it exploded. Seekings cut a few men near in half with his vickers. They did a quick reload, came back around for one last broadside on those precious cargo planes that were parked on the far side of the airfield, and then scampered back into the desert. The last man on the field was Maine. He'd stayed behind to land a bomb on a final aircraft. He sprinted across open ground under a hail of fire, affixed his bomb on a short timer, then sprinted back to his jeep before the last plane burst into flames behind him. Maine did it because he was getting close to 100 aircraft. Behind them, they left 30 to 40 ruined planes and scores of dead Germans, a flaming airfield of twisted steel and shattered bodies. For the devastating toll they'd enacted on the Germans, they lost just one man in return, Lance Bombardier John Robson. They said their prayers for him over tea and buried him in the sandy earth. Back at their forward base, the men refitted the jeeps. The next few weeks were hard going. The Germans didn't take the raid on Sidi Hanesh lying down. They hunted down SAS patrols, destroying vehicles, and even killing a few men in return. Sterling, already stressed, felt the intense pressure of command. In the mission debrief, he ranted at the men about wasting ammunition, straying out of formation, and disobeying his commands. There had been some chatter among the men that the old method of sneaking in and laying bombs was better than the jeep attacks, and Sterling rankled at the questioning of his decision-making. The raid overall was considered a huge success, and Command was very pleased. A little too pleased. They roped the SAS into a multi-pronged, mixed-armed offensive on the port of Benghazi. Sterling bristled at his guerrilla raiding detachment being used as part of a regular offensive. He couldn't help but think of the failed mixed-arms offences the commandos had taken part in. He considered the whole thing to be a waste of the talents of his men. But he wasn't in a position to say no, and after some flattery, including a dinner with Winston Churchill himself, the SAS were combined with other units into Force X, one of a number of different assault groups that were to make a mixed offensive on the port. Operation Bigamy was a failure. 118 SAS men, including a host of new recruits, drove 800 miles across the desert to an oasis, received word from their spies that the Germans knew they were coming, met heavy resistance at a roadblock, retreated, and spent the next week being strafed and bombed by aircraft as they ran back across the desert. They lost 60 vehicles and nearly a quarter of their fighting strength. There were a number of factors that contributed to the failure of the operation. It was widely known about, so German spy rings would have certainly received advance word. It misused the SAS, treating them as a regular division of the army rather than a specialised raiding op. 
and the SAS themselves, in particular David Sterling, failed to scout ahead properly, something that was very out of character for Sterling. He was someone who loved a good reconnaissance mission. The SAS were then upgraded from being a simple unit to a full regiment. Overseen by Sterling, the SAS was now split into four sections. Group A was seasoned veterans and would be commanded by Maine with Bill Fraser as his second. B was new recruits, headed by Major Vivian Street. C was the Free French Forces and D was the Special Boat Service, on-water operators specialising in shipyard assaults. In addition, a second SAS regiment was founded by Sterling's older brother Peter. One SAS were to set up their base at the oasis of Kufra to stage night raids on German supplies near Benghazi. Operation Lightfoot, which would be later known as the Second Battle of El Alamein, was coming up, and command wanted German supply lines to be as disrupted as possible. Sterling, now a lieutenant colonel, had no trouble finding officers for the now vastly expanded SAS, but ran into serious trouble finding qualified enlisted men. He was sternly rebuked for his efforts to recruit directly from other units by senior officers. Sterling was forced to recruit raw troops, who wouldn't be ready in time for the coming offensive. On the 23rd of October, 1942, the Second Battle of El Alamein began. The SAS were prolific in their actions behind German lines. They blew up the railway so many times that British command ordered them to stop because the British desperately wanted there to be at least some railway left for them to use when they captured that territory. And capture it they would. The Germans took a hammering, suffering 35,000 casualties. Rommel was forced into a speedy retreat. Things weren't perfect, though. The SAS had trouble making the transition from a small raiding unit into a full-fledged regiment. The new guys, some of which were rushed into battle with SASA, needed more experience, and the veterans resented having to take rookies with them on such dangerous missions. Back in Cairo, Sterling was busily recruiting and training up the new B Squadron. He wanted to get them ready for combat soon. He knew that Operation Torch, the arrival of American forces in Africa, would be occurring very soon. He had only a slim window of opportunity for his new regiment to prove itself in combat, and for that, he needed his new B-team in operation as soon as possible. On the 20th of November, 1942, he led SASB into combat, driving out from their base at Cabrit, four jeeps and a slew of trucks embarked on their mission across the Sahara to meet with SASA. The two squadrons divided up a massive section of northwestern Libya and set a target of 48 strikes per week on Axis transport movements. This would ruin Rommel's supply lines and soften his forces up for a fresh Allied offensive that December. But Sterling didn't stick around with his new unit. He had work to attend to in Cairo. He left the brand new officers of SASB with only a week's worth of supplies and a pile of completely new recruits. When challenged about this by the officers, he replied, Oh, well, you'll just have to live off your fingernails. Forage around and, and see what you can pick up from Italian settlements. They're bound to have hams and, and that sort of thing. The new SASB was to receive a crash course in the kind of risky business the SAS was known for. By the 12th of January 1943, just three officers had survived and avoided capture. 
Sterling hadn't been idle in Cairo. He had been working long hours shoring up new recruits and organising the SAS for a post-Africa role. The scale of the regiment had grown so much that there was little time for leading from the front anymore. When he returned to Western Libya, he looked exhausted, suffering from frequent headaches and showing signs of malnutrition. SASA under Maine had crippled German supply, and now the British Army was planning the major offensive that would allow them to link up with the Americans who had landed further west. Sensing the war in Africa was winding down, Sterling wanted one last piece of the action. He ordered the other SAS units to engage in further sorties against German supplies, and he himself took Mike Sadler and John Cooper on a reconnaissance mission deep inside Tunisia. This mission was a totally unnecessary risk, and most historians seem to think Sterling had other motives. It's likely Sterling was more concerned with the glory of being present when the British and American armies met and to reunite with his brother Peter. As usual, he would be operating well inside German territory and thought he could just operate with impunity as he always had. But the land here was different. This wasn't the Sahara Desert, into one could simply flee. It was quasi-urban. There were small towns and farms dotted everywhere. One evening, the party camped in a small valley. Sterling didn't post sentries or order the surrounding area scouted. He brushed off reports by Sadler of an Italian troop transport unloading nearby. The following morning, Sadler was woken up by a kick to his leg. Two Germans with submachine guns had found him, Cooper and a third man, Taxis, asleep in their tent. Raising their arms in surrender, the Germans then ordered them to stay quiet and left them be. The Germans headed down the ravine in search of the group's officer. The moment they were left alone, Sadler, Cooper and Taxis ran and hid. They managed to escape the Germans and after an epic several hundred mile march, found the safety of Allied forces. Sterling and 10 other men were captured by the Germans. Sterling did manage to escape that evening, but on his way to safety, stopped for several hours to survey a German airfield. He was still so cocksure of himself that the Germans wouldn't get him, he was willing to waste precious hours of time, alone and without supplies, deep inside enemy territory. He then offered a reward to some local Arabs for returning him to safety, but those tribesmen decided they'd get a better deal from the Italians. They traded Lieutenant Colonel David Sterling, commander of the SAS, over to the Italians in exchange for 11 pounds of tea. Sterling would never see action again. The Germans sent him to the famous Kolditz Castle, where he waited out the war as a POW. In his private letters home, Rommel would write, Thus the British lost the very able and adaptable commander of the desert group that had caused us more damage than any other unit of equal size. In just 18 months, Sterling's enormous appetite for risk took him from being a disreputable drunken lieutenant to a half-colonel in charge of an entire regiment that had, and I quote, swung a hammer blow out of all proportion to its weight. Sterling's SAS, not counting the innumerable dead Axis troops left in its wake, had destroyed something in the vicinity of 300 planes and taken itself from a tiny experimental raiding group to a fully-fledged regiment whose practices and principles would be emulated by militaries across the world. 
those same gambles had also killed innumerate Allied servicemen that didn't enjoy Sterling's charmed run of luck. In his later years, Sterling would refer to his younger self as a damned fool for the decisions he made on that final fateful mission. But only a damned fool could have made the SAS work in the first place. Only a fool would demand HQ give him an entire unit to run just out of officer's school. Only a fool would parachute onto a Nazi base in the middle of a thunderstorm. And only a fool would sneak around the desert at night with homemade bombs strapped to his back. The SAS needed fools, a gang of unsupervised men in their mid-twenties, blinded to the risks, keen on action, and free from the temperate hand of older men. Otherwise, they could never have rendered as much chaos to the Axis as they did. The SAS would survive Sterling's capture and would go on to serve in Italy and France. But the hard men of the regiment still keenly felt the loss of their daring commander. Paddy Mayne would later write to Bill Sterling, quote, I only wish that David was still about. In reply, still smarting with a degree of insecurity about their relationship, Sterling would say, quote, I loved Paddy. I was more fond of Paddy than he ever was of me. The unit loved Paddy Main as well, and that's why, despite reservations from command, he was made the new commanding officer of the Special Air Service. Please join me next time for Who Dares Wins Part 2, Paddy Main.